The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. I'd ask at this time you please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, and we're going to begin our sermon this morning from verse 18. Our passage today begins in the temple. These events seem to take place just literally minutes after the confrontation we learned about last week when the Pharisees and the Herodians questioned Jesus about whether or not they should pay taxes to Rome. Jesus answered them, and it says they were amazed at his response. They marveled at his response. And we're left to fill in the blanks about the transition that takes place here between that scenario and this. I imagine that the Pharisees and the Herodians tried to put on a good face and they walked away with their tails between their legs and went over to the Sadducees and basically said, tag, you're it, your turn. See if you've got anything to take this guy down because they had done everything they could to undermine Christ and had been unable to do so. So now the Sadducees are going to take their turn. This entire encounter took place just two days after Jesus had entered into Jerusalem on the donkey on that day that we traditionally call Palm Sunday. It was just one day after Jesus flipped the tables in the temple. This is Tuesday of Passion Week. Now let's turn our attention to God's word. I would ask that you fully set your mind on this. These are the most important words you will hear from the pulpit this morning. And please follow along as I read aloud. And Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died leaving no offspring, and the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scripture nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Please join me as we pray for these words to impact us this morning. Our God and Father, we love you. And Lord, today as we consider perhaps one of the most underappreciated and underconsidered aspects of the gospel, God, I pray that you would please give us the grace to understand your word. Let us see the great value in your word. Let it impact our lives so that we might live out our days according to your word. And God, if there is anyone here living in rebellion against you, I pray, Lord, that you would cause this to be a a convicting message. 
God, if there's any area of our heart that is not yet turned over to you, God, I pray that you would cause us to be changed by your word. And God, if there is anyone in our midst who does not currently trust you for their salvation, God, I pray that today would be the day that you open their eyes to truth and give them the great gift of new life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In order to best serve you this morning, we're going to examine three points from this text. First, we'll consider knowing apologetics. Second, we'll consider knowing scripture. And finally, we will consider knowing the power of God. Point number one, knowing apologetics. Apologetics is the art of defending our faith. It's an important tool in the toolbox of a Christian. Unfortunately, though, for many of us, it's a tool that is never sharpened. Rather, it sits in that toolbox, becoming rusty, and therefore it is worthless when it's needed. I want to examine a few aspects of Jesus' conversation with these Sadducees that might help us to grow in our conversations with those who would seek to oppose your faith. First, let's examine the men who came to oppose Jesus. These men were Sadducees. This is the very first time in the entire gospel account of Mark that we ever see Jesus interacting with the Sadducees. Remember, we've defined the, the Pharisees many times. These are men who believed in the scriptures, but went beyond them and they created their own legalistic system to propagate their own self-righteousness. Well, conversely to the Pharisees, the Sadducees rejected much of the Old Testament. They only adhered to the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. They denied anything that was supernatural. So we know, for example, that in this text, it says they reject the notion of resurrection altogether. We get more of a, a full picture of this from Acts chapter 23, verse 8, which says, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. In other words, anything supernatural is not true. There's no life after death. There's no heaven. There's no hell. There's no angels, there's no demons, there's no spirit in us. We're just people, and when we die, we die. To the Sadducees, almost anything supernatural was considered superstition. Mark makes a note of this in verse 18 when he just tells us straightforward, they deny the resurrection. This means that they do not believe at all in any form of afterlife. When I was growing up, I remember sharing the gospel as a seventh grader with my friend's father. Uh, my friend Jeff Scobie, or my friend Jason Scobie and his father Jeff, I was in their living room, and his father was a very intimidating figure to me. He was a doctor, he was a big man, he was a strong man, he was an intelligent man, and I was terrified to share the gospel with him, but I did. And he was kind enough to listen, and at the end of the conversation, he said, listen to me, kid, when you die, you're worm food. And that was the end of the conversation. By God's grace, years later, he did come to Christ, and now he is uh, with the Lord in heaven. But that man's perspective was the same as the perspective of the Sadducees, and the same as the perspective of many today in our world, even many who would call themselves Christians. If we compare the Pharisees to, to the Roman Catholic Church, which we have in the past, then we could probably appropriately affiliate the Sadducees with Protestant liberalism, those who reject the notion at all of any supernatural things. We see that taking place significantly through the Enlightenment period, and it has just grown immensely throughout our modern time. But when the Sadducees approach Jesus, they know that Jesus believes in life after death. 
So they offer him this hypothetical dilemma for the purpose of revealing that their perspective is correct. Life after death is completely untenable. Have you ever known anybody like this? (laughs) Individuals who do their absolute best to come up with some reason why your faith is foolish or what you believe is untrue. And they do their best to convince you just to walk away from Christianity altogether. And they will say, just be reasonable. Stop being superstitious. Things like that. One of the ways in which people will attack you is by creating absurd hypothetical situations to prove their point. Notice the situation presented by the Sadducees. There's one woman. She gets married to a man. And according to the law of Moses, when he died, it was her brother, his brother's responsibility to marry her so that he might carry on the family line. First of all, I think somebody should call a detective here after all these men keep dropping dead. What's going on with this woman? <clears throat> I mean, <laughs> the statistical improbability of all these guys dying in succession is astronomically high. But let's say, what if it did happen? So the Sadducees create this hypothetical situation. What if it did happen, Jesus? Now all these people are in heaven. And wait, who's the real husband? Won't that be awkward for these brothers who have to sort this whole thing out in the afterlife? Do you prioritize the first marriage or maybe the last one? Or how do you determine this, Jesus? It's likely the Sadducees had used this argument many times against the Pharisees in their philosophical debates. It's likely that the Pharisees could never give them a good answer to this, so they continued to use it and expected it and anticipated that Christ would have no answer. This is their favorite battle tactic, so they bring out the big guns against Jesus. Now, we should be preparing ourselves for these kinds of attacks. We should be preparing ourselves for people to come at us with attacks against our faith that oftentimes will be edge cases, scenarios that we've never considered because they're absolutely ridiculous. However, consider the words of J.C. Ryle. I believe this is a good encouragement of how to perceive and respond to these things. He says, let us remember that an unbeliever will always try to press us with the difficulties of religion and especially with those which are connected to the world to come. We must avoid this mode of argument as far as possible because it is leaving the open field to go fight in a jungle. Now, are there biblical answers to these questions? Absolutely. And we will see that in Christ's response. However, our primary responsibility in these things is to get to the central point of the gospel. Move them from their absurd hypotheticals to a legitimate truth, the scripture. Do this knowing the amount of evidence, though, is incapable of convincing somebody to come to Christ. The Sadducees knew about Jesus. They knew his miracles. They knew that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead just days earlier. The God of the very universe, the one who created them, was standing right in front of them. What more evidence do you need? Yet they rejected him and they did not believe. But I also want you to remember that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So take them to the scriptures and begin to show them the immeasurable wealth of the riches that are to be found within these pages of our Bibles. Which brings us to our second point, knowing scripture. Notice how Jesus responded to the ridiculous scenario that was offered to him. In verse 24, he says, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Now, I love this. He just straight out tells them you're wrong. There are times when it's appropriate to respond to somebody just to say lovingly, you've got this one wrong. Where I'm from, though, 
what he does here, we call them fighting words. These are men who are considered to be the most biblically literate people and doctrinally, doctrinally knowledgeable men in the entire world. They rank among the top 71 most respected theologians alive in that day. Yet Jesus says to them, you are wrong because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. <laughs> That's pretty blunt. These are fighting words. The word for wrong that he uses here, you are wrong in verse 24, is the same Greek word from which we get our word planet. Let me understand why he uses that word. Unlike the stars which are fixed in their constellations, the planets seem to wander around in almost an unpredictable pattern as they revolve around the sun. So those ancient astronomers who looked at them could not determine why is it that all these other stars just seem to stand still and we can map them, but that one and that one and that one seem to just be there for a night and then disappear. What's going on here? Well, they're planets. That's what's going on there. They didn't understand the universe well enough to know. So this word planet means to wander away. And he says to them, you are wrong, or you have wandered away. You've drifted incredibly far away from the truth. He says this again in verse 27 when he says, you are quite wrong. You have wandered incredible distances from the truth. So how does this drift happen? Well, first of all, I want you to see the way that Jesus speaks to them. He says, first, you've rejected the scriptures. You don't know the scriptures. You don't understand the scriptures. One of the books which has been most influential to me in my entire life is a book called Knowing Scripture by R.C. Sproul. I, I like to read, but I rarely read a book more than once. And this is one of the few books that I have found necessary for my soul to read multiple times. And in this book, he says, Isn't it amazing that almost every American has an opinion to offer about the Bible, yet so few have actually studied it? Sometimes it seems as though the only people who've actually taken the time to study it are those with the sharpest axes to grind against it. Many people study it to find possible loopholes so they can get out from under the weight of its authority. Wow, that's a genuinely true statement. And from my experience, I see this often. People say, yes, I believe in the word of God, but their belief in it is more closely related to when you click, yes, I agree at the bottom of a software agreement, which you know, it says, have you read all of these rules and obligations? Yep, no one does that. You've never done that. You've never read all those policies or procedures. The Sadducees had centered their entire lives, though, around actually reading them. It's not like they just ignored them and said, yes, I agree. No, they had spent their lives reading and studying and even arguing the Bible. So how is it that Jesus could say to them, you know neither the scriptures? Did they not know it? Was it not in their mind? Some scholars suggest that Jesus is just condemning them for their rejection of the majority of the Old Testament. There are 39 books in the Old Testament, and they, they denied 34 of them were divinely inspired. So some people will say Jesus is just telling them, you've just chosen five and rejected the overwhelming majority of God's words. However, I find this unlikely. These men still worshipped in the synagogue, which would use the Old Testament books that we use today, all 39. They would have known the meaningful uh, parts of the Old Testament to them because they would have conversations and debates with the Pharisees who believed these were the words of God all the time. No, I don't think Jesus is simply criticizing their rejection of those books 
Why not, though? Because Jesus takes them to the book of Exodus, a book that they know really well. And he says, you know neither the scriptures. Look again with me to verse 25. It says, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? Now, that's a big push to them. You believe in the book of Moses. Have you not read? Have you not read in the book of Moses? In the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. I always, I always get a kick out of it when Jesus says, have you not read? I mean, that is an incredible statement to these men who absolutely have dedicated themselves to reading these words. So what is Jesus doing? He's pointing them back to the scriptures. But this seems like a strange place to make a proof for his resurrection case. So why does Jesus choose to go to Exodus 3? Aren't there better places with more information or details in the Old Testament about resurrection? Absolutely they are. So although the text doesn't tell us this, I think I have a good sense of why Jesus does what he does. I think I know why Jesus goes here to Exodus chapter 3. Because when the Sadducees approached Jesus, they did so with a supremely unlikely hypothetical edge case. But when Jesus responds, he went to the single chapter in the Old Testament, which was more studied by the Israelites in his day than any other. There is no single phrase in the to the Pharisees or Sadducees that they researched or revered more than the self-given title of God, I am, found in Exodus chapter 3. So Jesus goes to the passage that they thought they knew the best. They were supposed experts in this material, yet Jesus is lovingly revealing to them, hey guys, you missed something. I like the NBA. I enjoy it. I watch it. I listen to podcasts about it. I like the NBA. I know about Steph Curry. He's an incredible basketball player. I know a lot of details about him, but I don't know Steph Curry. I've even met some NBA players. In fact, I've even played one-on-one with an NBA player. Yet I guarantee that that player does not remember my name. He does not know me, and I do not know him. I might know some stats, but I don't know him. I dislike politics. I don't really enjoy them. But I know a lot about Donald Trump. I do not know Donald Trump. I actually know several senators. I've met three current senators that I have shaken their hands and I've discussed things with them. And I've even met one state governor. Yet, though I've met them and I've shaken their hands and I even know their political positions, I don't really know them. I don't know who they are or what they're really like. Even in our language, you see that there is a relational aspect to this word, no. I know you. It denotes a form of deeper relationship than just knowledge or information. The Sadducees knew a great deal of information about the Bible. And Jesus says to them, you don't know the scriptures. You've got some information in your brain, but you don't really know it. They were studying the Bible like somebody reads the Nassau County Penal Code or tort law for dummies. They were studying it for the purpose of bending it to their own purposes or for the desire to make it say what they wanted it to say. They're not going to it and bowing down and saying, Lord, I will do whatever you want from me. They do not view it as their authority. Specifically here, Jesus references Exodus chapter 3. As you know, 
This is when God commands Moses to return to Egypt. Moses makes some excuses. He says, but I, I, I can't speak very well. And God tells him he will send plagues and he will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will deliver the people of, of, of Israel from Egypt. He gives him all of these promises. I will do these things. So let me ask you, who is it that's saying that to Moses? Who is it that's making these promises? Is it not God? Of course it is. And the Israelites knew, even the Sadducees who rejected almost everything supernatural, believed that this was God himself speaking to Moses. But every time that we ever see God physically represented in the Bible, it is always the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. He is the one who said, I am. My name is Yahweh. This is Jesus Christ speaking from the bush to Moses. So when Jesus is saying these words, he's not merely reciting some old book. He is repeating his own words. And now Jesus interprets them in a way that the Sadducees never expected. So let's look a little deeper into Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, that Jesus quotes to them. It says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. One of the most humbling and sometimes even discouraging things that I do on a regular basis is that I will always listen to every sermon that I preach. I don't do this to puff myself up. In fact, it has the opposite effect most of the time. I do this because I want to improve my sermons. I want to do a better job of preaching God's word to you. And I honestly hate doing it, but I do so so that I will be able to proclaim God's word more faithfully and with more clarity. And it seems like in every single sermon, I say something that I didn't intend to say. I use the wrong word, or my brain gets ahead of my mouth, or even worse, my mouth gets ahead of my brain. I work really hard. I work really hard to prepare and say the correct things, yet even when I do that, my words are often flawed. How much more is our regular, everyday communication filled with meaningless and frivolous and inaccurate and incorrect terminologies and descriptions, and words. But God's not like us. By God's grace, he is, not, he is not like us. God speaks all of his words concisely and precisely. So it's no accident or slip of the divine tongue when God said, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He did not say, I was their God. These people have been dead for at least 400 years. No, he says, I am their God. This is no squabble over semantics. It reveals that the truth of God is always right under their noses in the scriptures, yet their doubt and their unbelief blinded them to the most foundational truths about what happens to people when they die. So what about us? Perhaps the greatest spiritual warfare that you will face on a daily basis is the imperceptible draw of your attention and your affections away from your Bible. You might think that big spiritual warfare is when something terrible happens. There's a car accident or somebody passes away. No, but real genuine spiritual warfare is happening around you all the time when you are convinced that there is something more delightful to your soul than this. So I encourage you, get your nose into the book. But I'm not merely speaking about reading your Bibles. I'm not just saying read it. I'm speaking about your Bibles reading you. It's not enough to know God's word in your mind. It must come into full submission to him. You must say, yes, Lord. Yes, Father, I will do whatever you command. You must do what it says and live out God's command. And you must trust in his promises that he gives us. 
Which brings us now to our third and final point, which is knowing the power of God. Jesus said to the Sadducees, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. In particular, when Jesus speaks of the power of God in this passage, he's referencing the power of God that gives life and gives life after death. Did God not breathe life into Adam when he created mankind? Did he not breathe that breath of life into his nostrils? Did he not create all life that is on the earth? These men thought so little of God's character that they did not consider him interested in rewarding those who trust him. And they thought so little of his power that they considered him unable to give new life. You can see part of their mistake is that they assumed that eternal life would be just some kind of extension of what this world is with very minimal changes. But Jesus teaches us all in this passage that our relationship will be drastically different in every way when we are in heaven. Jesus said, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. God has created institutions here on earth. And he has created these institutions to operate in such a way that they will not need to operate or exist in heaven. I'm your pastor. If I were to die in the pulpit right now, and you were to die out there right now, and we were to go to heaven together, I would not be your pastor in heaven. I will not be a shepherd for you in heaven. There's no need for me to do that anymore because Christ will be your heavenly shepherd. I am only serving a temporary purpose here as a pastor. If you and a political figure, perhaps Mike Pence, who is a professing believer, were both to die right now and were to go to heaven and you were to have a conversation together, he has no political authority over you. Why not? Because that government is here, not there. There is no need for that institution of government to be present in that way in heaven because God is king in heaven. If your parents were saved and you were to die now, and you were to meet them in heaven, they would not be in any way in your having authority over you in heaven. Likewise, if you have children, it is your responsibility, your God-given responsibility to train them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. It is your responsibility to teach them about Christ and show them the way that they should go. But if they come to know the Lord, and they die, and you die, and in the future you're both in heaven, you have no authority over them any longer. Why not? Because these institutions have no more purpose Because God is our Father in heaven. And finally, as Jesus states in this passage, your wife or your husband will not be that to you in heaven. Now I know right now for many of us, this is almost an unimaginable thing. God has given us such a deep abiding love for our spouses that to even think of no longer being bonded together in marriage is very difficult for us. But in heaven, there's no longer going to be any marriage except the great marriage of Christ to his church. And if you're married, your spouse is one of the greatest gifts that God has given to sanctify you. For some people, that sanctification takes place from years and years and years of difficulty. For others, that sanctification takes place from years and years and years of marital bliss. For most people, it's somewhere in the middle there. God uses you to sharpen one another because you have two sinners living in close proximity together, and God is using, you to conf- using them to conform you into the image of Christ. Marriage absolutely has a purpose, and it has value. Don't hear Jesus saying it's, it's worthless. But when we arrive in heaven, that purpose will have been completed. 
and we will be able to rejoice in Christ forever. Now, I don't entirely understand what heaven is like. This verse is not enough to give us a full perspective of what heaven is like. But I do know this. You and I who are going to be there will not be disappointed. Now, this was not the kind of resurrection that the Sadducees had ever imagined. Surely, this was a stunning rebuttal of what they thought was a great argument. It's something they had never anticipated. But why is it such a big deal? Why is it such an important thing for Jesus to make this clear point to them? So allow me to spend the rest of our time together speaking to you about reasons why I believe and the scriptures teach that the resurrection is so vital to our lives. First, I want you to see that we live our lives based upon what we believe. If you believe that there is nothing in the life to come, then you will live necessarily only for the present. Your life will be completely consumed with gathering as many things to yourself as possible. You'll t- you'll be like the man who we see in Luke chapter 12, who is smart and a hard worker and successful, and so successful that he literally tears down his barns to build bigger barns, and he was expanding his company. <clears throat> and here's what we read about that man in Luke 12, 19 through 21. Jesus says about this man, this man speaking, he says, I, I will say to my soul, soul, You have ample goods laid up for many years, so relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. God calls the person who lives their lives as though this is the only life a fool. That person is a fool. They might look great. They might be wealthy. They might have everything that you could possibly ever want. Yet, they are a fool. This extends also into your conversations with the lost. If you think that someone is really going to stand before God and be judged by him, then you're going to be very intentional about informing that person that they are a sinner in desperate need of a savior. But if your intention is only limited to the here and now, you're going to downplay the severity of the situation and you're going to live as though there are no consequences for unsaved people within your sphere of influence. Just let them go on doing whatever they want to do. And on a personal level, if you ignore the realities of eternity, your own life will be filled with all forms of distractions as you seek to drink your fill of the joys that the world has to offer. Meanwhile, you will fail to feed your soul and strengthen your inner man with the word and with prayer and with meditation. Insults and hardships and persecutions, those things feel like they're impossible to bear if this is the only thing that you see and perceive. If this is all there is, that stuff is devastating to you. So I pray that God would give you an eternal perspective. I pray that God would allow you to live each day with heaven in view, knowing that this world is not your home. You're just a sojourner passing through on your way to the true city, your city, heaven, where you will recognize the designer and builder is not man. The structures around you, the things that are designed to entertain you, they're not of man, they are God's. And secondly, I want to tell you, if there is no resurrection, then you are still in your sins. If we don't have the resurrection, we have an incomplete gospel. 
It seems as though the false thinking of the Sadducees made its way into the early church. In Corinth, for example, there were some who denied the resurrection. And in response to them, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 22, he says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith, now I'm speaking to you from God's word, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are to be most pitied. This is awful news. This is terrible news. This is the worst description of life that Paul ever gives because there's no hope if there is no life after death. There's no life after death. What are you even doing here? But Paul continues, praise God, he doesn't stop there. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. That is glorious truth. You see what Jesus is doing here in his conversation with the Sadducees is not just some argument about Hebrew syntax or exegesis is not merely a trivial thought experiment. Jesus is telling them verbally what he is going to show them physically in just a matter of days. As I said earlier, Jesus said these words on Tuesday of Passion Week. On Thursday night, Jesus is going to be betrayed into the hands of these men by Judas. And they will hand him over to the Romans. And on Friday, he will be executed by the hands of lawless men. But after three days, just as he had told the apostles, he arose. He did not remain in that grave. He arose and conquered death for all who would ever believe in him. Jesus is not merely defending the concept of resurrection. He is lovingly, although subtly, informing the Sadducees of the same thing he told Martha in John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus was not the first person who ever came back to life though. So what's going on here? It says that he's the firstborn from the dead. But didn't Elijah raise someone from the dead? The widow's son? Hadn't Jesus raised that man who died in Nain? And hadn't he raised that little girl when he said Talitha Kum? Hadn't there been people who had come back from the dead Before, they are all examples of people whose lives were restored. What's going on here? How can we say that Christ is the firstborn from the dead? Well, it's because their lives were restored, but all of them died again. All of those people were resurrected, but not like Christ. Two weeks ago, Jim preached from Colossians 1.18 about how Christ was the firstborn from the dead. He was the first to be resurrected into a glorified heavenly body. And if you die in Christ, you also will be given a glorified heavenly body. So Christian, you can rejoice in that fact that God has made a place for you. 
Be thankful that God has given you life that never ends. Eternal life begins when you are saved and never ends. If you've trusted in Jesus and you've been given the gifts of faith and repentance, then you have hope that can't fail, that Christ will bring you safely home. But let me close with a loving word to those who are here that do not know Jesus as your Savior. You might be like the Pharisees who knew the Bible really well and who believed all 39 books of the Old Testament. They, they trusted in them in some way. They thought that they made them holy and righteous. They thought that they were good people because they were legalistic. They were self-righteous. They thought that they had approved, um, they had done enough to prove their value to God. Or maybe you're like the Sadducees who deem themselves too intellectual to believe in spiritual things and thereby completely deny the scriptures and reject the gospel. Either way, the Bible teaches that you are in a desperate condition. And unless you repent and believe, you will not only experience physical death, but you will experience the eternal wrath of God, which is the second death, which is hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is never quenched. That's bad news. But there is good news, and there is good news that Jesus died for unqualified, unworthy, undeserving sinners like you and me. Even though we have rejected God and we have run from him, he sent his son to pursue us and to save us. Jesus' death was an intentional act. It wasn't an accident. It was something he decided to do on purpose to be gracious and merciful so that he might take our place the just for the unjust. And if you trust in Jesus, that he died for your sin and that he was raised from the dead, then you too can also have certain hope that you will live with him forever. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you that your word teaches us this delightful truth, this amazing truth, that this world is not our home. God, I thank you that we are able to rejoice and celebrate around your throne forever because you have redeemed us and bought us by the blood of your son. God, I pray that we would never consider this world to be all that there is. Lord, please help us, protect us from the false teaching of the Sadducees. Lord, even if we know about heaven, please, Lord, don't let us fall into the practice of living like it doesn't exist or that this life is all there is. And God, I specifically pray and most particularly pray for those who don't know you, God, please show them the reality of their sin. Please show them the great desperate state that they are in and please, God, save them today, we pray. Amen.